Please do be seated, and yes, as David said, uh, page 1001, be great to have that open in front of you as we continue in our series on the book of Revelation. And I want to begin by telling you that all the nightmares of your childhood are true. Now, we see coming of age as a great moment of disenchantment when we slay dragons and ghosts and demons, those that we believed in when we were young, puff the magic dragon and all that. We tell children that there's no such thing to reassure them, or we make monsters into cute, fluffy toys to be given away in McDonald's Happy Meals. But we're wrong. There is a dragon... And it's neither cute nor fluffy. And having demystified the world, we now need to remystify it, which is what the book of Revelation is helping us to do. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, Michael's been watching too much Game of Thrones, which I don't watch, but it's got dragons in it. Can I be serious? Well, I'm deadly serious. But let me explain. I don't mean that there's literally a fire-breathing creature, probably green, that can fly somewhere, anywhere on earth. What the extraordinary picture language of the Bible is pointing us to is the reality that the world has been inflicted by an inescapable and inexplicable and powerful evil. There is rampant on the earth an evil that includes us in it but is more than simply human. Though we can't absolve human beings from blame, we cannot either reduce this kind of evil to individual human responsibility. It's as if there is an enormous parasite that's burrowed itself down into the world and is leeching off it. In April this year, two Russian schoolgirls, 15-year-old Yulia Konstantinova and Veronika Volkova, who was 16, jumped to their deaths from an apartment block in their hometown. Police discovered on inquiry that they'd been playing an internet game called The Blue Whale Game, which apparently encourages people to watch horror movies all day on a sort of endless cycle and then wake at strange hours of the night and ultimately encourages them to kill themselves. About 130 teen suicides have been linked to The Blue Whale Game. How can we explain this darkness? What dark heart created such a thing and inflicted it on the world? What prompted these girls and others like them to take the precious vase of life and dash it into a thousand pieces for no good reason? The truth is, after we've dissected all the parental and societal mistakes and blamed social media and the internet, we're no closer to the truth. There's just something mysteriously bad at work in the world and in us. Dragons, we might say. The book of Revelation wants to lift the lid on this view of the world. It's sometimes like, I think, reading the book of Revelation, like lifting a rock in your garden and seeing all the insect life that's been going on underneath it while you are paying your bills and doing your washing. There's a whole soap opera going on underneath those rocks. And Revelation 12 has just this kind of eye-opening vision for us. It's a dramatic and tense, even epic story. It's got everything. It's got a pregnant woman and her child and the enormous red dragon involved in the struggle to the death. By the way, 
uh, just so you can impress your friends at dinner parties, the Greek word for dragon is dragon. So there you go. I've never forgotten that. And there's even, uh, and I didn't choose this passage because of this, there's even an archangel called Michael there, uh, which was made into a very bad movie starring John Travolta, which is nothing like this passage. More of him later. But first we meet the woman. How does she look? How is she dressed? Well, it's extraordinary, her fashion choice here. She's clothed with the sun. And under her feet, she's got the moon. And she's got this crown, and in the crown are 12 stars. You might remember from previous sermons that the, the number 12 is a very important number in the Bible. You can think of the 12s in the Bible as the 12 tribes. And then there's the 12 apostles. So the number 12 is a symbol for the people of God. And so here we have this woman symbolizing, standing for the people of God. And this woman is pregnant. Indeed, labor pains have begun, and they must be fairly advanced because she's screaming out in pain. Enter then the dragon. How does it look? It's red. It's fearsome. It's almost impossible to imagine drawing this dragon. It's got seven heads and ten horns. Are all the horns, how are they distributed on the heads? I don't know. And it's got seven crowns on it. And with a powerful sweep of his tail, he swings down a third of the stars onto the earth. He's done damage. He's a destructive and sinister force. He's malevolent. And horribly, he's there waiting for the woman to give birth. Why? So he can consume her baby. We see enough of this in nature. I remember seeing a documentary about tigers, which involved a mother tiger defending her tub, cubs from a male tiger who was quite prepared to kill them. Sometimes nature is not as cute as we want it to be. And like that, this dragon is intent on a meal. The child of the woman, fresh out of the womb, just as Herod tried to have the infant baby Jesus killed when he was born. And then the baby is born. And we hear about who he is. He's a male child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And this is clearly a reference to the Old Testament's to Psalm 2, where exactly the son of David is introduced there, and he, is, we are told, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the Messiah. The people of Israel were looking forward to one who would come from themselves, one of their own, who would be the one who would overturn the, the, everything that had been against the people of Israel ever since just as Eve had been promised in the garden that her offspring would one day crush the serpent's head. But what's going to happen here in our story in Revelation 12? Will this royal baby be gobbled up? Will he be slaughtered by the slavering, drooling dragon with his teeth at the ready? No, he's snatched up by God and to God and to God's throne. And his mother, she flees into the desert where she is to be kept safe. The dragon tries to destroy the Messiah, but he is thwarted. But what's he going to do next? Because he hasn't been defeated. Well, in the next section from verse 7 on, we see there's a, heavy, a heavenly battle. And the forces of heaven led by Michael, what a great name that man has, are aligned against the dragon and his army of angels. It sounds like a scene from the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? With orcs against elves. And then what do we hear? Well, the epic struggle ends. 
with the defeat of the dragon, and he's thrown out of heaven, cast down onto the earth, not because the archangel Michael was some great general, but because the Christ child had been taken up to rule on the heavenly throne. Heaven is no place for the dragon. His defeat has come. As if we haven't twigged already, the dragon is identified for us in verse 9. What does it say there? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. By the way, Satan literally means the one who accuses, the accuser, who leads the whole world astray. And then John hears a loud voice in heaven say the words that we hear in verses 10 through to 12. I struggled with this hymn all week. And I'll tell you why in a second. These, these are terrific words. Though he hears the sound, this, the sound of victory. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, the Satan of our comrades, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. But they have, a con- they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Why is it here? In the middle of our story. The dragon seems to keep going. And yet here is a song of triumph and victory. It looks as if the dragon has been kicked out of heaven only to go and wreak havoc on the earth. But this is a song of triumph. Is this an end to the story in the middle of the story? Well, that's sort of right. And if we look at it carefully, we'll see what John means. The voice declares that the dragon has been defeated. And that means that God has been shown to be the winner. The accuser of God's people has been shut up and silenced. And how has that happened? How is it that God's, the accuser of God's people has been silenced? Well, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The dragon has led us all astray. But by the blood of the lamb, we have conquered. The victory has been won already. How? The dragon is the one who accuses us day and night. He's like a lawyer, the prosecutor of a great case against us. That you and I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we belong to him. And he's come to claim us. We belong to him and not to the holy God, he says. But on the cross, where Jesus died, he bore on himself the full weight of our sins, the full consequence of those, of those sins. So there is now for us, as Paul says in Romans 8, no condemnation. The great scheme of the dragon has been undone. He has been hurled down to earth and now God's people belong to God. But this is the key thing to know. Though he's been defeated, he's still rampant for a time. I want to take you back into your garden again. And do you remember looking in your garden at one of those little lizards? Skinks, I think they're called. Do you know what happens when you pick one up or you try and you know, try and catch one? What does it do as a defense mechanism? Do you remember? loses its tail, right? And you kind of look at this bizarre thing. Uh, I mean, you, can't, you can only do it. I, mean, I don't know how long it takes to grow a tail back. You can kind of only do it once a week or so, at least, right? So, but then the tail, what does it do? It doesn't just sit there. It wriggles. 
it kind of it still wriggles, although it's not attached to the body. So the tail is sort of dying and defeated. It's just there, wriggling. Well, it's a bit like that. The great dragon has been defeated, but still wriggles in his death throes. He's still powerful, but only for a time. You might say he's like a chook with his head cut off, running around the yard, flapping, but going to fall over and die one day. He's still quite upset, but you know it can't last. He's powerful, but only for a time. His defeat has already happened. And, and you can see what happens in the, next, in the next little bit of our text here. In his desperation, his futile desperation to do some damage, he pursues the woman. But she's given, and this is the beautiful image, she's given wings of an eagle, which means she can find safety for the period that he's rampant. But he, he tries even the tactic of flooding the earth, but that doesn't work either. Now, the original readers of the text would have known that the church in Jerusalem in the first century fled into the desert to escape a terrible war that broke out in the 60s AD. And perhaps literally a flood had happened in the place they'd fled to, but they'd survived. So the dragon, who can't get at the woman, the church in Jerusalem now being safe, goes off to wage war against the rest of her children. That's what it says in verse 17. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. The attack on the Jerusalem church, the first church, was only the beginning of the attacks on Christians all over the world. As we know, the fires of persecution were only just being lit. So what does all this mean? Well, it means we need to be real here. There's a malevolent evil at work in the world, and its particular target is those who belong to Jesus Christ and stand for him. Sometimes it looks as every bit as dramatic as the scene we've just heard from, from John. When 21 Coptic Christians were beheaded by ISIS on the shores of the Mediterranean in 2015, and the video was uploaded to YouTube, we were seeing just this sort of bestial activity at work. The Christians of North Korea are beaten, tortured and imprisoned and live their days out in labour camps. According to Open Doors, which is a, a group that uh, watches over the persecuted church, 215 million Christians are suffering persecution for their faith right now in the 21st century. Where I've just been to our friendly and supposedly liberal neighbour, Malaysia, just to our north, it is illegal for ethnic Malays to convert to Christianity. And there is a move to bring in the death penalty for conversion. One Chinese Christian there said to me, we are second-class citizens in our own country. One man that I taught there, Farshid, is a refugee from Iran. He became a Christian, he's an English teacher, and he read the Bible, because if you're going to be an English teacher, you need to read the Bible. So he read the Bible and became a Christian just on his own. Because he'd become a Christian, he had to leave Tehran fleeing for his life with his wife and now is a basically a citizen without a state living in Malaysia while he waits the, as the years tick by waiting for the UN to find him a country to live in that won't persecute him for his beliefs. There are people this moment who do not love their earthly lives so much as to shrink from death on account of Jesus Christ. And they are God's gift to we Christians in the West to remind us of what it means to stand for Jesus Christ, what it is costing our brothers and sisters to stand for Jesus Christ. They are a salutary reminder to us in our casualness and flippancy about what standing for Jesus Christ means. 
They are given to us at this moment in history so that we will remember that our home is not here but in heaven. Now, we don't experience that kind of threat here in Australia. In fact, I would, it's very important for us not to see ourselves as a persecuted group. I think in Australia we have many, many privileges as a Christian church here. The dragon doesn't need to pursue the tactic of persecution in Australia against the church. His attacks on God's people in our country mostly come from within. We are divided over petty things in the Australian church. We are guilty of arrogance and of overlooking the vulnerable. We've neglected our responsibilities to the children in our midst. We've overlooked grave and serious evil. We've lost credibility in the eyes of the community because of our behaviour. We are being devoured from within rather than from without. Many of our church leaders have traded away the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to look relevant and even cast ridicule on the Bible. The dragon loves a divided and complacent church. He loves it when church leaders ridicule the Bible and scoff at their own beliefs. He loves it when we become so frightened of losing social influence that we forget to testify to Jesus Christ. He loves it when we act out of fear and defensiveness and defending our corner and not out of love. He loves it when we think this world is enough and forget about our glorious eternity. After all, what's the point of this this vision. It tells us that the people of Jesus Christ have conquered. It tells us that we are safe and secure, that we don't have to give way to fear. Make no mistake, the dragon will come for us here at St. Mark's and indeed is already at work. And the better we testify to Christ, the more we will see him at work. Well, the more we commit to being a community that proclaims Jesus Christ and word and inaction, the more the assaults will come. We will be distracted by petty squabbles. He will tempt us to be bitter with one another, to carry grievances against each other and not deal with them. We will be more interested in social status than in the gospel. We will be tempted to overlook sin and not to seek to repent and seek forgiveness from God and from one another. We will believe that we are saved by our good deeds and our decency and not by the blood of Jesus Christ. We will be self-congratulatory. We will be unwelcoming and heartless. We will forget children and young people or neglect the elderly and frail. And this is a particular temptation for St. Mark's. We'll keep a beautiful building going. We'll keep this building standing, but watch while it empties and there's no one attending. Let me put it this way. The dragon wants us to not love one another and he wants us to forget Jesus Christ. He wants us to not love one another and he wants us to forget Jesus Christ. He wants us to believe that he is going to win and he wants us to be very afraid. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're going to keep the commandments of God we're going to hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're going to, what does God command us to do? He commands us to love one another and to love him. And we're going to remember Jesus Christ. We're not going to act from fear, but from confidence. The confidence God gives us and the security that he gives us. St. Mark's is going to be a community of people transformed by grace, the grace of God, to love the world. We are not going to forget the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to pray as those who know that Christ has won a great victory. 
We will not be dismayed by our sins, our own sins, or by the sins of others. We will, not think, we will think of remarkable things, remarkable ways to challenge the power of the dragon and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. We will put aside arrogance and presumption, but we won't forget the confidence that comes from knowing that Christ has defeated the evil one, that there is no condemnation now for those who are in Jesus Christ. Revelation 12 is here to tell you that what looks ordinary and boring to you, the stuff of ordinary everyday life, is in fact epic. You're in an epic when Christians live faithfully together in marriage through thick and thin, or when we live heroic lives of singleness, when we pray our feeble prayers in the morning, it's we stumble a few words even in the morning, when we turn to each other rather than away, when we welcome in the new person into our midst, when we give that spare dollar to the work of the gospel and to the ministry of the church, when we support our indigenous brothers and sisters as they gather in the name of Jesus Christ not far from here, when we partner with rough edges to help those whose lives are broken and chaotic who live not far from here in our midst, when we offer hope to young people that shines a light into the dark world of the blue whale game, these are the epic acts of resistance against the dragon. This is the heroic life to which we are all called. And never forget, as we heed that call, that the dragon has already been defeated. Resist him, says the Apostle Peter, and he will flee. Why? Because we belong to Christ the conqueror. One of my great heroes, Martin Luther, he, uh, he told the story that the devil came and visited him uh, while he was uh, in bed one night and uh, he rolled over and he said, oh, it's you and went back to sleep. And he was trying to tell us there that that's exactly how we can treat the devil. We can resist him and he will flee because we belong to Christ who has conquered. As the great old hymn says this, the church will never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be the, the church and the people of God that we've spoken of this morning, that we would not give way to fear, but rather have the sure confidence and hope that is in you because you have already won the victory in Jesus Christ. And we pray that that reality would now transform our life together, that we would not let evil get a foothold among us, and that we would stand in the world for a different way of being, that we would never forget Jesus Christ, and that, that we would testify always to him. And in his name we pray. Amen.